everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. This week, the conversation continues with Jen Peoples and Phil Session. Last week, in part one, we talked about anti-racism rebranding, statue removal, and the damaging impact of slurs on social demographics. In part two, we'll be discussing Embrace Race seminars, the ongoing BLM protests, and simple steps we can take to support diversity in our own lives and communities. And now, picking up from last week, we begin with our first topic, Embrace Race. have a lot of free webinars and some anti-racism content. It's at www.embracerace.org. And the reason I'm bringing them up is that they have a two-part series that's going on now. And the first part has been recorded now. It's accessible by recording, I think, at their Facebook page and also some other venues. But it was about anti-racism in uh, multi-racial families. Right. And so that's another thing that I hear. And especially what we hear is I I've heard and a lot of people that I know have had the same experience of hearing people basically say, I have mixed race kids, so I can't possibly be racist. <laughs> and they're basically raising these children into the white narrative and the white mindset and, you know, that whole culture of whiteness and then basically saying they're shielded because they have a mixed race child or they've adopted a child that is you know interracial or a different race and so I really wanted to catch that webinar which again there are free webinars that they do regularly if you want to sign up with them they'll send you emails on it and then if you miss it like I did you get a (laughs) notification that says it's been recorded and you can go catch the recording but I didn't get to see it but I did promote it and Phil you said you sat in on that uh, I did. I was actually, I was able to catch it live, which I'm, I'm glad I did. I was working at the time. And so I, I hated that I couldn't give it the full focus that it really needed on that side. Cause I was actively working during that time, but I do plan to go back and rewatch that. But right. This, this is what they had several guests on. So it was like doctors, uh, Victoria Brown, Marcella Hall and Kaylee Faye. It, it was just a really, it was a really interesting discussion that I, I had heard pieces of it. So growing up, you know, in my school, especially elementary going through middle school, it was a very diverse population that attended those schools. I remember like some of the issues that they were touching on, you know, when you have these multiracial, multiracial children, how they interact with others around, like how they fit in, how they kind of describe themselves can be a very hard thing to do. And so they, it ranged from talking about multiracial children that are considered white passing so that you would not know that they have, you know, an African-American parent or whatever, because they they did touch on other uh, ethnicities as well. But for this conversation, a lot of it was focused on, you know, African-American and some type of European descent parent. And when they're white passing, if if they're in a certain environment, depending on what environment they're in, they may identify one way or another. And they were talking about the struggles if they are in a majority white family, like they have this huge family that they're, that they're around of most, that they're exposed to the most, should I say, that's what they grow up with, that that could possibly lead to them developing some attitudes and uh, even some animosity towards their other side, so to speak. You know, this other part of them that they don't identify with 
as much. I, I thought it was it was a fascinating discussion with you know these parents that they all were. And with one was an expecting parent. She was going to be having like her first child. I think she was like in just a month or two. And you know she's a doctor as well. She was kind of going over these things in uh, her mind. But it definitely is something that did not strike me as much when I was growing up and they were talking about how teasing can can happen in school when people look at this particular child that's you know much lighter complected than everyone else around them and how they can and I had to go in my own memory banks and it was just like wow that was that was really a thing back at my you know middle school something like that you know we would folks would call others like yellow bone was a particular term that was thrown out referring to someone that is very bright skinned they're african american and the fact is they could they could not even be biracial they could just be very light complected but it was one of those things where it's just like oh you know you, are you a yellow bone or and, and it would be tossed around as a slur of some type you know i, I don't know if it rises to that like i need to get more information from someone who's experienced it on the other side to right, know right. how that comes across. Now, I mean, I haven't used that that term in years. It's been over a decade plus since I that. Tell you, I've never even heard of it. Like I never, I've never heard that. Oh yeah. Uh, it, it was a thing. And it was yeah. so, it was so regular. It was so common. And that's, it's, it was weird as I was listening to this and it was just like, well, what the hell was I doing during that time? And you know, this was this, like, this was okay. Back then, and that kind of goes into what uh, you no know, something we talked about earlier, as far as not seeing different ways of language how right. it can affect other people when you're not of that perspective. You don't know how that's coming across because I don't know how they feel. I, I don't know how they felt about them being singled out in that way, yeah. or you know how that made them feel when they went home and went to go talk to their parents about why do these why do they keep talking about me in this way, you know, why do they single me out? Like, what, what's wrong with me? You know, I didn't do anything, you know, that type of thing. It was a fact, and this is only part one of two, no, no less, like there, there's another part coming that I'll be interested to uh, go ahead and, and get that one as well and to really digest that because it was a really fascinating look that opened my eyes a little bit about this other demographic within this minority population that, you know, you don't hear too much about. You don't hear that perspective often. And it's worth considering, you know, how they're taking that in and how they actually struggle with that identity of going back and forth, depending on what complexion they look like. Do they have bright eyes? Do they have the regular curly hair or is it more straight? They went into that and how that affects people's perception. Because I remember growing up that we also talked about it was it was used as a negative connotation. It may not sound like it, but that's how it was used. But like, oh, oh so you think you mixed? Like, or you mixed with something, or you, you got some Indian in you, or something like that. It, it was thrown around in those terms, and it, it really made me start thinking. I just want to say one of the things I really love about Embrace Race is the caliber of guests that they have on and hosts that they have on. They elevate the dialogue, in my opinion, and I think that is badly needed because you have conversations like we're having here, and these are casual conversations, but it's important to note, this is something, obviously, lots of people are going to have opinions on it, but mm -hmm. there are educated opinions and there are ignorant opinions. Right. And there are people who actually have devoted their lives to studying the social dynamics of race and understand these issues on a level that the rest of us need to wrap our brains around the fact that just living in the culture doesn't mean you know what's actually happening here. 
right? Because we're all in our own little boxes as far as the narratives that we live. And it's like you're saying here, Phil, I mean, you, you, you like you say, I've been black my whole life, right? But here <laughs> I promoted this seminar about anti-racism. You turned it on and you're sitting here saying, hey, man, I learned something. And it's like, I'm telling you, as a white person, I learn a lot. Yeah. And yeah. I, I just wanted to comment that, you know, listening to the stuff that Phil was talking about, about you know, mixed race people and there's like a whole range of skin tone within the black community. And there's impacts because of that, that as white people, we don't see that. And I, I think it's one of the reasons that the people that say, oh, I don't see color, that is so damaging. It is such a racist viewpoint because it's like you you don't see color because your default is whatever white people see because you don't see anything else. Um, and there's all these other shades of, you know, experiences, really. Well, that's the thing we're talking about like this, with a slur, right? There's no way to slur yeah. me. There are certainly insults that are aimed at my whiteness, but those insults don't don't carry with them a threat of of a of an imbalance of power dynamic that causes me any concern. I don't have to worry when I'm labeled that, you know, who's around and is this some kind of a threat that's going to translate into something larger or is this going to affect my job or is this going to cause me some kind of trouble? Is somebody going to get violent with me here? Is this you know, as somebody that's white that is hit with a pejorative term, I can take it or leave it. I can get as offended or unoffended as I want to because there is no actual threat that comes with that. Like as far as a social dynamic, I'm not talking about an individual level here, but as far as a social dynamic, somebody who's identifies as a different race getting upset with me because I'm white, they, they have no power. They, they really don't have the power. They're not in control of this here. They're not controlling the history. They're not controlling the definitions. They're not the CEOs. They're not the Congress. They are not represented everywhere pervasively like I am. Right. right? This, is, this is my peer group. And so well, you, you have a situation where when you're in the dominant culture, when you're the person that is like identified as the power group and you are hurling that kind of a slur, again, you're, you're labeling them. It would be like, right. a, like somebody in a concentration camp yelling, you know, at the Nazis, hey, fascist. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm sure that really <laughs> stings yeah. and yeah, he's going to have trouble sleeping at night. It, it, when you're the person that's in the camp, you can say whatever you want. The person that's that's got the gun that's like patrolling the perimeter doesn't give a shit or they do. It's up to them because yeah. they, they have the luxury of being able to choose whether to care or not. But the person in the camp. If they get on the bad side of the person patrolling the perimeter, that could translate to some damage. Right. And that's why I don't have a problem with the term, you know, a Karen referred to referring to, you know, some white woman who's calling the police on, you know, black people just existing. This is the woman in power who is abusing her privilege. Right. She's, Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. It's like it's. People, I've heard people say, oh, but it's about her gender and it's about her race. And it's like, no, it's about her privilege. That is 100% about her privilege. Right. The name Karen got stuck on that just because we got to put a label on it somehow. So Karen it is. Sometimes sometimes they get named after the people in the videos. Barbecue Becky. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a few of them. But yeah, you know, it becomes part of the narrative. And and when somebody says, oh, that, yeah, she's acting like a Karen, we know what that means now. Well, this is the whole thing about understanding punching up and punching down. It's it's like I say, when, when you're the person in the camp and you're calling the, uh, you know, the female guard, the Karen, she just doesn't care. 
Yeah. Right. Now, when she's in the camp, which sometimes is going to happen, she might be the one in the camp where somebody else is around that perimeter calling her a bitch. Mm-hmm. And now she has to worry about what comes with that label. So when you're denigrating somebody for their behavior, <laughs> for shitty behavior, that's one thing. When you're denigrating people not because of how they're acting, but because of what they are, that's when you have an issue. And not just what they are, but what they are in the context of a society that views them as less. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess now might be a good time to point out people being better. Be best. Yeah, be best. <laughs> Don't be better, be best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trying to be uh, generous to someone who, for whom English is a second language, that still is, I, I can't get past the nonsensical sound of that whole slogan. But it's anyway. just the whole, I can't get my head around any of it. I'm still yeah. like, I, I'm st- I think I'm still in shock that, that uh, Trump won 2016. Yeah. And so <laughs> you know, she talks about, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really opposed to online bullying it's like have you seen your husband lately <laughs> uh, don't even get me started on like the the list of gaslighting it's just oh, yeah. unbelievable i mean it, i can't i can't it's every day it's seven times a day if i had written a science fiction you know some dystopian science fiction horror story a few years ago that described the events of the last three and a half years people would have said no, there's no way. That's way too far out. Nobody will believe it. And here we are living it. So here we are. It's, it's 2020. And for that campaign, the fact that it was her, like it was her signature thing. So like Michelle Obama had the, the get fit uh, yes. campaign. That, that, that was her big, yeah. uh, Oh, and uh, that was the big push. The conservatives lost their fucking minds over that because how dare she suggest kids should eat healthy foods and get more exercise. I will cram little Debbie snack cakes down my child's throat for three meals a day just because I can't handle a black family in the White House. Whatever it takes, like, if I have to kill my children to show my displeasure, then damn it, that's what I'm going to do. The idea of having... Sorry. The idea of having healthy side items, because, you know, when I I was going to school, it, it was fries was the primary side item or you might have mashed potatoes or something like that but you know but you know being able to have broccoli instead which you know not everybody does broccoli but you know it's it's something or carrots or having some option like they had those mixed veggies was it corn broccoli uh corn and peas and carrots or something like that you know that was a thing being able to push that rather than just oh we have fries you know more fried whatever as a side item or maybe even trying to help the entree every so often that that was this big scandal like how dare you do this and this is the way things have always been and oh dear but the the be best campaign the fact that you know it's you know her quote unquote signature campaign, uh, so to speak. Well, at least I haven't heard of any other campaign. So maybe there's another. One. I just haven't heard the the faintest on. But was, was um you don't I don't care to do you. Was that a campaign or was it? She had some. Oh, was that a, the, a shirt? <laughs> she wore the jacket. I don't know if it was. Yeah, I think that was just the jacket. Uh, but, but it was just like when you have your husband that will attack anyone and everyone at the at the slightest, not even if they actually did anything wrong, but even the perception that they did something wrong or that even somebody if they disagree that, with him. Yeah, you know, they just have to disagree just, with him for him to lose his shit. It's just like this is 
like does that does that campaign start at home like that's the question i wish w- someone would ask and i'm sure somebody's asked it maybe in a roundabout way because i'm sure they're all very selective with interviews but i would like for like a serious you know barbara walter you know somebody that's been established to say like so you know your be best campaign is about x y and z so does that begin at home like does that does that start with you? Like, you know, how are you planning to do that? Or are you just planning to talk to kids and go on these big speaking tours and not address the main problem of the, you know, commander in chief, you know, who is your husband that's doing all of this. And I don't want to put it all on her that she has to police her husband's behavior. Cause as we know, people, people are individuals and they'll do what the hell they want to do. Right. Let's be clear. But to make that your signature campaign, it's, I'm not sure if she did it like as a stroke of irony to say like, yeah, we're going to put this out there. And I don't think it came about like that, but to do so when your husband is the source of so much of it on a national and international scale, no less, it's not just, you know, someone doing in a small school, you know, in a random place in the U S somewhere he's bullying people in an online forum for the international community to see. And they do see it. They joke about it. They put it on late night shows. It gets spread around to such a degree. Right. And it's but just I like, mean, that's and, and a huge... She has defended his bullying, right? So she yeah. has gotten up and said, when somebody hits, he hits back harder. She's mm-hmm. made comments similar to that, where she basically just says, you know, oh, it, somehow I guess it's okay when it's him. But I, I don't know. I, people have been through the BBS thing. <laughs> <laughs> We've been there. Oh, boy. And now I think what's going on is, you know, we're looking at these protests and people are saying riots. and, And what I find interesting is that we have these protests about systemic racism resulting in police brutality to the black community, especially. Some people believe that the solution to that is to send in more brutal police to go in and brutalize people even more. It's just so much wrong with that. And what I'm not hearing is anybody saying, hey, why don't we start fixing the problem? That's, that is you know, the thing. Why don't we stop? That and, and that was, um, I posted this video from a guy called the Liberal Redneck, and it's his little routine, I guess, like a couple minutes about George Floyd. And one of the things he was saying, you know, toward the end of the video was stop murdering people, assholes, right? Like that was his thing. He's like, the, the, the damage here lies squarely on the shoulders of the people who are doing the damage, right? Mm-hmm. Not the damage in the streets, but the damage to the people that are in the streets now, right? And so it's kind of like what I was talking about with AOC saying, here we are in 2020 and it's still going on. Why is this still going mm-hmm. on? Why hasn't this been resolved if it takes more women? in Congress to fix this shit, then that's what we need to do. And it's the same with the black community. Why is this still going on? And at what point? I remember seeing recently people who have been circulating these James Baldwin speeches, right? And if people aren't familiar with James Baldwin, he gave some fantastic speeches and interviews, and I suggest looking him up. And when you look him up, he's talking in the 1960s usually, what he's talking about could be applicable today. Literally decades later, we're still in the same situation and things are, we're dealing with the same problems and it's not fixed. This liberal redneck video, one of the things he says was, why don't we ever talk about how often black people don't riot? 
Because he's like, is considering what all the shit that goes down for 400 years and what we're watching on these videos and what they've been putting up with all this crap, they should be rioting like every day, like burning cities to the ground. Like, the fact that they're not is pretty freaking amazing. I mean, I, there have been so many times in the last few years that I've wanted to ask all of my black friends, how are you not burning everything to the fucking ground every day? This is this is a demographic that is so tolerant and so patient, and people don't recognize that. Yeah, I mean these these what they're seeing, right? Like whatever yeah. the fires and statues, you know, occasional violence, what? right? What you're seeing on TV is a reaction that has been a long time coming, and it erupts mm-hmm. every 50 years or so, and it gets ignored. And the right. way to stop it is not to just keep trying to crack it down, which we do every time it happens, and it keeps coming back. And it's not going to stop coming back until we fix it. And that... that means fixing it across the board. It means fixing our definitions. It means fixing our history. It means fixing our society, fixing our attitudes, fixing our fear of diversity, and actually understanding that there are other people not like us out there and that they have an experience and a narrative that is not just different, but just as valid. Right. Yeah, that... that... That idea right there, I think it's it's being missed in a lot of discourse that I've been seeing online. People have their own feelings about the protests, and they come from all different angles. But what you just said was so true, that this is just the newest culmination of anger at the most recent events that have happened. This has been going on for decades, for centuries. It is, it's, this is not new anger. This this is this is not a new situation that's there. And I'm glad you talked about uh, James Baldwin. If you have not seen the series, it's called "I Am Not Your Negro." It is on, I believe, it's on Amazon Prime. Uh, you can just go on there. So people that have Prime, get right on it. Oh, it's it. on Netflix it, too. You can. It's get Netflix, it on Netflix too. And also, awesome. um, he's got some great stuff that's been recorded on YouTube. There's like a good uh, debate that he did with. Um, God, I can't remember who it was because I really just cared about the Baldwin part of it. It was wonderful. Um, <laughs> you, about. you can just Google the heck out of him and get so many great hits. The the man was an amazing speaker. Very insightful, just brilliant. What I love about him the most is that there was some real racist bullshit going on in this country that he just didn't want to live in here anymore. So he moves and he goes to Europe. He lives in France and he Mm -hmm. travels and and he lives away for many years and then he comes back. And one of the things that's really brilliant about his insights is that he has this fantastic perspective of someone who lived abroad and saw other societies and knew how he was treated in places that were not the United States versus how he was treated here and could come back and Mm -hmm. say, here is what you're doing that is really fucked up because when I'm here, I don't get treated like this. I don't get talked to this way. I don't get looked at like this. And he was very able to not just have the conversation from a perspective of the United States and here's the United States and back and forth within the United States, but to say, no, I've been outside this bubble and I've come back into this bubble and I see very clearly the distinctions between what I experienced there and what I experienced here. And it made him so much more insightful and relevant than these white nationalist U.S. 
racist perpetrators who were trying to make these other points or make excuses or try to explain it away. You can't explain it away when somebody is saying, I've got some things to compare this to. I haven't Mm -hmm. just lived in the baseline. And the fact that those white racists probably have never lived more than 50 miles from where they were born, you know, that's, that's their whole life right there. And the fact, the fact is that all of these, you know, these protests that are happening, you know, whether you call them rights, you know, whatever label you want to ascribe, the fact is they are, as Tracy said, a reaction to events that are happening that are unacceptable. They've been unacceptable. Like there's, like it hasn't been an acceptable time for they've happened, but it's something that needs to be addressed. And the fact that a lot of people are responding, well, we got to, we got to send these federal forces in. We got to, we got to crack that down. We got to send in those riot police. We got to really make sure that these people know that they can't do it in this way, that this is not uh, the proper time to do it. You're doing all of these to address the reaction and doing nothing about the underlying cause that made them get out there to take time off of work to risk getting ill from COVID and everything else to go out there and protest these events that have been happening just recently in this year, let alone to talk about years and years of different events. And there's so many hashtags and so many names and so many pictures that are out there in the past that have also generated these feelings. But if you're trying, if you're truly trying to stop these events from happening in the future, like these riots from happening that you're like so disgusted with or whatever your feelings about them may be, why would you not target the original circumstance that brought them about in the first place? Because until you get those original causes under control and actually start looking looking at them as causes of what you're seeing now that you so desperately don't approve of, then all you're doing is biding your time until the next one occurs. And then what? Then they come out into the streets again. And then you're just as shocked as chagrined as you are right now at all the violence. And I can't believe that they would do that. I mean, can you believe that they, you know, were kicking over there or whatever your feelings are? If you want to stop it, then you need to be putting your full faith, effort, and focus into targeting what made them go out there in the first place. Otherwise, you're just going to see it again in the future and be in this endless spiral that you so disapprove of. Actually do something more rather than if the majority of your rhetoric is focused on what you disapprove of in the reaction to the original circumstance, then you're not getting it. You're not focused on what the real issue is. And you're just kind of holding things in place until the next one occurs and you can be just as shocked and offended at the reaction of people who are looking at an event where someone got killed or you know someone got a no-knock warrant that was innocent and got shot in their own house while they were sleeping. Whatever that event is, whatever the catalyst is, you need to start looking at that. And it's just like, I don't know if people don't want to invest that time if that's too much to ask about, okay, what are we doing with our police? How are they actually interacting with the public? Should they be interacting in this way? What are we sending police out there to do? And should they be doing those particular things? Should they be responding to nonviolent offenses? Should they be going to, you know, scenes of accidents when it doesn't call for law enforcement? It just, you know, somebody with a clerk to take down that, oh, we had a fender bender or something like that. Should they be even involved in that interaction? It's about 
refocusing and understanding what our police and law law enforcement do, what we actually want them to do, what problems do we see well, when they respond to certain situations that they're not prepared or not adequately trained to handle, whether it be somebody that has a mental impairment that they're not ready for, and they react in an, in an over-assertive way when that's not what that situation called for. It's looking at what our system is, actually critically examining what we're doing wrong, and then starting to fix it. Then you can start to reduce the number of protests that are needed. Things are going to happen. That is just a statistical you know, that's probably going to be a statistical thing. It says it is what it is. But let's reduce the amount of catalysts we have that start these protests in the first place. Let's address that behavior. Let's address where we're sending those folks out and make sure we get qualified folks to go out for certain calls because the police should not be handling these wide array of situations that they're not trained that they're not prepared to handle for, and that can result in disastrous and tragic consequences that shouldn't have been there in the first place. Well, it, it's kind of like, I didn't want to interrupt because I was like, woo, he's on a roll. Oh, you, <laughs> sorry. But um, there were several things that, that I thought of. I just typed them down so that I would have them in front of me. Um, when oh, sorry. Cause I, no, because I was like, I'm not stopping this. Yeah, I mean, I look at this and it's like, how about instead of threats and intimidation and brutality, we try something we've never tried before, which would be listening. Yeah. Like, why don't we just listen and and actually cooperate and make a good faith effort to fix the problem? The, the things that I wrote, though, is number one, the, there's a really good article on warrior policing that's in Harvard Law. Um, mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed it. And I probably will post a link to that, um, you know, in, in the information when this goes up as the podcast. Um, but it's all about warrior policing and how that training works and the problems with how the police have evolved into like a, a something different than they used to be. It's not the same institution. And I'm not even saying that what they used to be was awesome. I'm just saying that we have really, really picked up on the warrior mentality and the, the sort of fear for your life if you're a police officer, always be ready. There's like one quote in that article from somebody that's involved in the training that um, is something like, you know, um, always always be aware that anybody around you could try to kill you or something it was like really weird i was like okay that's yeah. <laughs> that's getting really strange but um the warrior policing thing in harvard law google that um and i'll like i said i'll probably provide a link when this goes up and also people don't see social movements um because they're slower right it's almost like evolution how people are like, well, I believe in micro, but I don't believe in macro because you could see the micro. It's, you can't watch the macro evolution, right? So that takes place over these much longer spans, and so it's harder to actually wrap your brain around it. And that's what it's like when you have a social movement that is a self-defense movement. So if someone attacks you in real time and tries to kill you and you do damage to them or harm to them or even kill them trying to defend yourself if it's necessary – then people are just like, oh, well, you know, that was self-defense. You were reacting to a threat. And so, of course, you had to be violent because, you know, how else could you do this? You were protecting and defending your life. And what they don't understand with these social movements is that this is just like a social version of that, 
so you've got people being murdered in the streets. You've got people being financially oppressed and educationally oppressed. You've got really still, although there's no legal basis for it, there is still lots of segregation that goes on. We see it mm -hmm. uh, in our schools, in our neighborhoods. And so you've got health healthcare disparity. You've got the justice system has disparities from top to bottom. All of this has been researched. This information has been around since I was back in college, which is more years than I want to admit. But this, this is not new stuff. And it has been going on. And so what we are seeing is literally an act of self-defense. And people don't realize it. You're right. People don't realize what they're looking at because it, the, the time span between the things, you know, and what's going on and the reaction to it, it, they're looking at it sometimes and they're saying, oh, it's George Floyd, but I don't understand. Like the cops have been arrested. So what's the problem? It's being dealt with. And they're not seeing mm -hmm. the systemic problem. It's not, this is not about a man. This is not about a thing that happened. It's about a thing that happened that triggered a larger movement of outrage about all the things that happen. And it's a self-defense movement. The, this is something about people saying, I don't want to be murdered in the streets, right? Me and Phil, we had a discussion one time, and Phil, you were talking about the, the way you respond when a policeman pulls you over, how you're checking to make sure your hands are in plain sight, and you don't have, you've got mm -hmm. everything, you can pick it up so you don't have to be reaching under the seat for your wallet or anything like that. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, <laughs> nothing like my experience, you know, like you were talking about your, your uh, woman friend and how that opened your eyes to how people might perceive other people in a dark setting or, a, you know, isolated setting or something like that, trying to walk around so that you don't intimidate someone smaller or, you know, a woman. And yeah. what I was looking at was, you know, you telling me about your experience with fear of police, right? And so right now I'm reading things like my next door neighborhood stuff and they're all like, I'm not going to defund the police and I don't want to reallocate resources. And it's like, well, no, because white people feel safe and fine. And like I get pulled over by a cop and and I feel fine. I, I feel like the worst thing that can happen is I'm going to get a ticket, right? I mean, that's that's my bad day. And the worst thing that you're worried about is you just don't want to get shot because you're a big black man and you're afraid that you're going to intimidate this cop and make a wrong move and he's going to panic and freak out and put a bullet through you. It's not an unreasonable fear. And so when, the, when we're looking at these protests, we're looking at, at long-term social movements of self-defense. And we need to start realizing that, that that's what we're seeing is a self-defense movement, that this is people defending their lives. And part of the reason I know that that's not what's going on as far as perceptions, especially in non-black communities, is because of the posts that I see from my friends on Facebook, right? So I see what's going around. And right now there's this narrative that, oh, BLM is just a political thing. It's not It's not real. It's not genuine. It's like politicized. And one guy had posted on my, my page and said, it's all political because look, they're some of the money that they get goes to act blue. And I was like, okay, so you do understand that the Democrat party, you know, has put more people of color into positions of power in this nation than any other party. Right. And do you do understand that this is a systemic racist problem and that if we don't start getting people of color into positions of power, it's going to continue. Part of fixing this is getting representation and diversity into those seats of power. This is right. not divorced. It's not like there's a Democrat party and there's a Black Lives Matter movement and they're just pretending to be a Black Lives Matter movement so they can raise money for Democrats. Um, no, look at the increase in people of color and women who have been put into Congress and look at the party affiliations. And then you will see why these are the same thing. 
And at some point I was kind of arguing from a position of allies, but it's not even allies because Democrats, it's not like they're the white people. They're a political party. Right. And they are putting people of color into positions of power, letting them, I don't want to say letting them because that's, that's even disparaging, but they run candidates that are people of color. They have great support among people of color as far as voters and community voting blocks. They are in large part, the demographic Democrat is not like aligned with the black community. There is overlap. Right. They are the same thing, right? It's like they, I'm not saying you know, there are Democrats who are not black and there are black people who are not Democrats, but there's a huge amount of overlap between those right. things. And part and of the reason is that integrating into power structures is part of the problem that we've been having, that they that people of color were not being integrated into those power structures. They were being barred from those power structures. And so as saying that we're going to support an institution that uh, that is installing more people of color than any other institution ever in this country, and that that is somehow politicizing the movement is means that you don't understand systemic racism and how it works and how it's going to get fixed. Because right. this and is about getting people of color into positions of power. Right. And it's and the thing they don't seem to grasp is that it's not, you know, it's not accidental. It's not tokenism. This is very intentional about pursuing people who have high potential who have been overlooked and putting them in those positions of power and giving them the opportunity to run and win elections. And it's not that it's not tokenism because they're not promoting people that, you know, oh, well, we're just going to run you because you're black. It's that you bring a perspective to the a party. Valued, yeah, you bring yes. a valued perspective to the party. <laughs> and I'm not a Democrat, right? So I'm just saying, though, that yeah. I understand what's happening here and what I'm seeing. And what, what you're describing, not only that, but I will say that historically, I hear the frustration of the black community when they say we're sick and tired of people asking for our votes for white people. Right. Then 50 years later, we're having more protests. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to just say outright, every party's guilty of that. Nobody is uh, held harmless in that regard because for too long, that vote has been courted and not really handed positions of power in the numbers that are required to make it representation for the demographic within the nation. And so what we have here is people who have been sort of using the black community and sort of they have been saying, you know, give us your votes and we'll advocate for you. Give us your votes and you'll advocate for you. And I think we finally hit a point where we have a party that is saying we will mm -hmm. run them and we will install them. And your vote is going to mean something. It's going to guarantee you representation, not because we will advocate for you, but because we are going to put you in there to advocate for yourselves. Right. This is real power. And this is what needs to happen. And I keep seeing people saying, who should Biden pick um, as a running mate? I want to see, you know, and they're listing these people and I'm just eye rolling. And what I plugged into the last one just the other day was a bracket statement that said, I said, any qualified person of, of color, preferably a woman. Yeah, that's what needs to happen, because if they're not going to run a black candidate, if they're not going to run a person of color as the candidate, they need to get make sure to install as many as they can. If we get a, a Democratic representation in 2020, 
it needs to include as much diversity as we can get in there. And, and people have yep. to see that it's not just talking talk. We're not just talking about systemic racism and some academic cloud somewhere. This is going to be real action that is going to require some putting your money where your mouth is because it's the end of the white people sitting there saying, we will represent you people of color, just show up and vote. That's got to end. That's not acceptable. And it's the same with women. Women are so underrepresented in Congress. It's really disheartening. And there was one other thing I had that was in in the context of like the person who had said that it was politicized, that BLM was politicized. One other person said something about it being politicized because one of the mayors had said they were not going to allow these large gatherings, but they were going to allow the BLM protests. And they were like, oh, yeah, Democratic mayor, you know, pandering and this is all this is. And so I looked to read, read more large gatherings that were being canceled and put off were things like parades and fairs and crap like that. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. These are people that are, this is bottled up outrage for 400 years that is popping off again in its half century cycle. And these are people that are pissed because they're watching themselves murdered in the streets routinely and watching themselves on videos being asked if they live here and, you know, what are they doing in outside the door of their own apartment and why are they in this oh park goodness. and do you really belong in this neighborhood? I mean, how, how many times are we seeing this now? We have this shit that will not die, and this is some outrage. This is, like I said, disparities in healthcare, disparities in education, disparities in every level of the justice system, disparities in uh, representation at federal and even mostly local levels. This is disparity of, um, you know, across the board, across the board, people being suppressed here that are outraged and saying this has got to have an outlet. And they're basically saying, well, if you're going to allow that, then I think you need to allow a parade because they're <laughs> equating those yeah. two things. Yeah. And this is another one of those situations where it's like, think of yourself as the oppressed person here, right? Think of yourself as the person on the other side of that concentration camp fence that's inside the concentration camp. And somebody outside is saying, well, if we're going to let them do it, we might as well just have, you know, the children's fair. If you're going to cancel the children's fair, then we can't really let these, you know, these prisoners protest. It's so demeaning and dismissive to compare this movement that is happening right now and these protests and this outrage at murder in the streets by the state to a parade and to say that you can't understand why one should be allowed and why one shouldn't, why one is more important than the other. How is how is protesting state-sanctioned murder more important than a parade? Mm-hmm. Are you listening to yourself? If you can't see the difference between playtime and we need to do something to stop you from killing us. It's it's such a hard conversation to have with people to get them to understand why they should care. That it's so hard to convince someone that they should care on the side uh, when they're not directly affected, when... They don't see themselves as being potentially on the victim end of what's happening. You can get so divorced from it. And the willingness to understand is also very lacking. And what I see people have shallow opinions about X, Y, and Z. And then they are, as far as delving more or doing a Google search to find out a little more about a certain subject, it's too much 
for them to do so. They're not invested to do so. It's just, it's not at that forefront. And there's so much work that needs to be done, but trying to like, some people will spend time trying to convince other people and try to change minds because we need a lot of voices to, you know, enact change, but it gets so tiring trying to bring people along and, you know, basically present yourself in a way that they find acceptable so that they can be convinced that this movement and or your life is worth them lifting up their voice or becoming uncomfortable to learn more about the reality of the country they're in and the effect that they're having or not having by sitting on the sidelines and saying, well, that doesn't have much to do with me, except to say that I don't approve of these protests and what they're doing or yeah. how they're doing it. They need to do it in another way that right. uh, well, is better for me. Yeah. Well, and this this is the thing that really frustrates me about these all lives matter people. It's like, okay, if all lives really matter to you, why aren't you outraged? Because yep. the police, a police officer put his knee on the neck of an unarmed citizen in Minneapolis and held him there for now, I think we're saying more than nine minutes and basically killed him in front of cameras. Why aren't you outraged about that? Is it because you think it can't happen to you? Because I promise you it can or that you think he deserved yes, uh, that to happen. You know, because at what's happening in Portland and stuff like that, and the the federal response there, and I contrast that with the level of tolerance that was shown to the people that took over the uh, the wildlife refuge in... Right. Oh. Like, you know, these are white rednecks that are occupying, you know, federal property. Armed. 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 Yes, armed militia threatening violence and and yet you know, they were shown a level of tolerance that you know the people in portland have not been shown and you know what we need to do an entire show on the militarization of police forces and one that's a really really bad idea because i have so many thoughts on this i don't know if y'all caught that but i'm just going to call out that jen just said we need to do an entire show so i'm gonna hold everybody <laughs> to future recordings <laughs> and that that is not uh, that is not some back backdoor conversation because i have not spoken to anybody about a series or anything like that or this being ongoing recordings but i am totally not opposed to that so just yeah. uh, I would be okay having more conversations yeah, that the, what Jen just brought up that I remember seeing pieces of news about that and they were going in for negotiations when they were occupying the territory. And it, it was it was all of this stuff, like not once that uh, I hear about, well, we're going to send federal agents. They're going to they're going to go in there. They're going to bust some heads. Let's send some vans in there. They're going to just start grabbing them out of the Like it. It wasn't. It was so different. And that's amazing looking at the stark contrast of an armed takeover like that, a federal property, no less. Yes, yes. Well, there was a really good, again, like I said, um, Baldwin was talking in the early 1960s, and one of the quotes that he had, I posted recently because it was so relevant, and he basically said, when a white man picks up a gun and says, give me liberty or give me death, every mm -hmm. white person cheers. And he's just like, when you have a black man that picks up a gun and says the exact same thing, that black man is a criminal. That black man is going to get slapped down. He's going to be made an example of because they're going to make sure that the next black guy doesn't pick up that gun and say the same thing. 
and he puts it in a way that is like much better than what I just said. So <laughs> I would, you know, it, but it, but it's fantastically he's saying, "Give me liberty or give me death is okay as long as you're white. Yeah. If you're black, it's that, criminal." That was a good conversation. Yeah, I, I will plug that again. We mentioned it before. Yeah, I am not your Negro. Go find it. <laughs> out there just take take a minute take an hour or so just like chill out pour you some wine and just kind of soak that perspective in like it's it's really something good it, it really yeah. is since we're talking about black people who put out great literary stuff and things I, i'm a strong believer that you should not only talk the talk when you're talking about anti-racism, but you should walk the walk. And part of that is pay black people, support black artists, support black businesses and everything. So I want to I want to put a plug in for some black artists. Actually, one of them is deceased. It's Octavia Butler. If you have never heard of Octavia Butler, you owe it to yourself to read some of her work. In particular, a book called Parable of the Sower. It's available on Amazon. It's available on Audible. This book, I believe it was published originally in 1993, but it talks about Los Angeles in 2024. And some of the themes included in there are uh, global warming and the rise to power of a charismatic right-wing leader who promises to restore jobs and basically make America great again. Written in 1993, but Octavia Butler, Parable of the Sower. And then the other, the other book I want to I want to promote here is kind of a horror fiction thing with the zombie theme in it. If you like zombie stuff, science fiction, horror stuff, but it's it's like historical fiction too, because it's set in the post-Civil War period. And it's a book called Dread Nation. It's written by a woman named Justina Ireland. I have the audiobooks narrated by Bonnie Turpin, who's a phenomenal narrator. Anyway, Dread Nation by Justina Ireland. Fantastic if you like zombie horror fiction. She's African-American. She writes for from the African-American perspective. The book at the end has a little twist that you might see coming, but maybe not. Um, very interesting. Yeah, so those are two I recommend, both African-American women. Yeah, and one of the things I do is hang out on um, threads for uh, like black accounts, right? So black Twitter accounts, black forums and things like that. Anywhere where I am, you know, legitimately openly welcome to sit in. You know, I definitely would don't recommend that anybody lie or try to subvert rules to get into something like that. But mm -hmm. I make a point of trying to keep it diverse. I understand that there are lots of opinions on issues within the black community. And so I'll go in there and I will sometimes I'll watch, I'll read one account and I understand what they're saying and why they're upset about something. I'll read another account and see why they're saying they don't think that's a big deal, you know, to their community. And so I really do like to see a diversity of opinions within that community so that I can be more informed about what the issues are and what the dynamics are for an issue within the black community and that allows me to say okay well here's you know here's where i think the need the need lies you know sometimes i'll stay out of it if i feel like there is a part of that community that needs a voice then i will i will put that forward and i've tried to remind myself in recent months to lead with the black voice right so if i want to advocate for for that community in some way or to help amplify those voices in some way, 
then what I need to do probably is to s grab hold of a comment or a screenshot, you know, if it's public, of somebody from the black community saying it or expressing it well. And then if I want to write about it and add to that, that's a good thing to do. But um, it's really good to say, okay, so here's what I'm responding to. Here's what I'm here's what I'm trying to amplify. So this person is saying this thing, and he, and I read the thread, and so here's my takeaway as a white person and what I think is being expressed. I mean, I'll get feedback from my uh, friends, which I have like many friends on Facebook now that are black and they all have different views too and we'll get in there and start giving me their different ideas but if you really want to see what life looks like from that other perspective go in there and instead of telling them your perspectives just read just go in there and read just listen to those voices and don't feel like you have to interject anything or justify anything or argue about them with anything just listen listen to the outrage and listen to what makes them happy and listen to what they are cheering about and what they are pissed about and it's just such an experience you know to to open your mind to another person's perspective and to another community view i totally recommend it yeah i've i've learned so much from black twitter exactly <laughs> black twitter is amazing it really is yeah. I can I, 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 I can gauge anything, right? Like, so something happens, and I'm like, oh my god, that seems so racist, and I just rush to Twitter and like pull up my feed because that's 90% of my accounts right now are just like the black accounts, and that's yeah. what I'm following. Um, and I'll right away I'll see, you know, who's pissed and who's not pissed, and what do they think, and you know, was this a big deal? Was this not a big deal? It's awesome. And I'd also uh, just want to, well, since we're throwing in some small plugs here, I was like, let me just toss this in there real fast, but uh, black. Black non-believers just had a uh, what they call the, the black family discussion is what it's called. And it, it was done in two parts about Christianity, white supremacy, and true liberation is the theme. But it was one part done by, uh, so of course, Mandisa was there as president of Black Nonbelievers, but they had on uh, panelists, doctors, Sabrina Dent, let me see, uh, Daniil, Charles Watson. They also had a first part that was Dr. Sakivu Hutchison, Alfonso Seville the fourth, and Anthea Butler, who talked about so many of these aspects it also got into some of the religious aspects and background with the uh, african-american community but also going into current events that are very relevant at this time considering everything that's going on and so if you look up black non-believers and go to their main page they have a link to it right there on the top of there what do you even call that the the yeah. headline bar what do you I call that bar <laughs> yeah the black non-believer is a black family fact black family discussion <laughs> blah, blah. wow <laughs> what are the words right now black non-believer is a blah. black family discussion <laughs> look it up you know two-part little series that they did it, it was really good i tried to i tried to watch live i had to catch some of it in post but it was i found myself nodding just in the background just like mm -hmm, you know doing one of those <laughs> Those kind of things in the background. I was like, yes, yes, that's right. Like it, it was, it was good. A little cathartic for me, but there's some good information that was presented, and I love the different perspectives from the academic backgrounds and lived backgrounds of uh, all the different guests that were on there. So it's it's worth checking out. No, so I, I did want to get to that major league baseball thing. So um, yes, yeah, some major league baseball teams decided to take a knee, which is pretty significant because major league baseball in recent years has been 
pretty white, you know. White, it's white and Hispanic mostly, yeah. Yeah, but um, you know, I think that's pretty significant. And, and Tracy, you were talking about, I think, uh, about one pitcher who. Oh, that was actually Phil brought it up. I saw the story, but Phil had Phil's the one who was like, "Oh yeah, let me call this out." You had a name. Yeah, so uh, this was the uh, the Giants' uh, pitcher, Sam Coonrod, was his name. And so, you know, if, if you're not familiar, you may you may have seen it. it it's been kind of blowing up very recently. But there have been several major league teams that you know would take a knee. So they they have like a black ribbon, I guess, like a black fabric or something that goes around. So it spans both teams, kind of lined up like a, a horseshoe shape with both teams going sure. around, and everyone taking a knee, kind of in a moment of silence. And solidarity type of thing, but there, there was one individual that stood up, and so of course, as one of the only people that stood up, of course, they got a lot of attention. So you know, people kind of started, you know, trying to figure out what's going on, what was going on on that side, and so you know, he didn't say anything like right offhand, but then he he did, you know, share his perspective on that side, and it kind of. It, I just shared it on my Facebook today. It, really, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I was supposed to be working too, and which is a whole different thing. <laughs> but um, you know, he said this, this is a, a, an excerpt of what he had to say about it. But I, I meant no ill will by it. I don't think I'm better uh, than anyone. I'm a Christian. I just believe I can't kneel before anything besides God, Jesus Christ. I chose not to kneel. I feel that if I did kneel, I would be a hypocrite. I didn't want to be a hypocrite. Like I said, I didn't mean any ill will towards anyone. And so that that was his main explanation. He also came back later to give, I, I would look at them as more like subsidiary reasons, I guess is the best way to say it. <laughs> because it wasn't his main, like that was his main piece that he right. said first as to why he didn't. And he could then have just he, stopped right there. He could have. And said, religious <laughs> objection, it's not that I don't support the people, it's just the kneeling thing is, you know. Right. And and that, like, it still would have been a little insufficient for my taste, but that's, you know, that that's my opinion. That's the way that I'm looking at it. But he, he did go on. To also invoke that what he doesn't agree with BLM, talking about the movement in, in particular, not the police brutality portion, not that side, but well, BLM, he doesn't agree with certain aspects of them. He referenced them being close to Marxism and goodness, he, he said one more piece. I, I have to find it right now. He said he said one more one more excerpt on that side, but basically kind of putting it on. But it, it was like tossed on. And that's why I called it subsidiary, because it wasn't his primary defense, I suppose. And I was you know, speaking to you all early before we got on about I don't know if it was done. And just as a the best shield that he could think of as to not get criticized, because historically in this country, I mean, you could shut down conversations if you invoke your religious cover, you know, you put that cloak on and that's kind of shielding against certain criticisms, to be perfectly honest. And if he would have stopped there, like he probably still would have got some, he would have got some for me, let's be clear. But the fact that he went on and he linked, you know, BLM, oh, well, there's a Marxist organization and political and whatever else that he had to say, it was just like, I don't, honestly, I don't buy it. Like, I, I don't buy it. Like, you're, you're saying that you are Christian as if these other people that are sitting here in this horseshoe with you, you know, your, your players, your right. teammates, the other team, as if they're not Christian as well. Right. Yeah, they, they, sure. 
Right. That, that's the thing. It's just like, you know, given the statistics of this nation's, yeah, you're, you're going to find some on that team. And yet they found a way to look at it in that way. And so I looked at it. I was just like that. It's amazing to me how you equated that or thought that you were making some statement, trying to cloak yourself in that garb well, to say, like, don't don't criticize this. This is for Jesus. And I only right. kneel before And the things God, that bothered but... me about it, the things that bothered me the, the most about it, I mean, I, ever, I still remember some of my, you know, Sunday school lessons. And the, the first thing that came up was the Good Samaritan. Right. And so I remembered that story. And when you were talking about this to me um, before we started to record, one of the things I remembered was the story of the Good Samaritan, for folks that don't know it, is that there's a Jewish man. And Jesus, of course, is a Jew, and he's often talking to the Jews and giving them these little parables. And one of the parables was about a Jewish man who's robbed and injured, left for dead on the road. And all of these kind of high and mighty people pass by like a rabbi and you know like all these people that have like these high estates the pharisee goes by and all of these very very respected jews walk past him and they will not they don't feel that it's their place to have to stop and help this you know average jew who's like injured and robbed on the road and so they just they walk past him and and make it not their issue um, and meanwhile, uh, a Samaritan goes by, and the Samaritans and Jews were two groups that did not traditionally get along at that time. And so Jesus is basically saying the Samaritan, who is kind of like, uh, has a lot of animosity toward the Jews, is walking down the street and sees this man, and he stops and helps him, and, you know, tends to his wounds, makes sure he gets to a place where he can get help, pays for his lodgings, and things like that. And then at the end of it, the whole story was in response to a question where somebody, the the law was to love your neighbor as yourself. And so they had asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And this was, this story was Jesus' response. And so when he gets done with it and basically says the Jew is on the side of the road and all these other Jews who are very prestigious and enjoy these positions of privilege within the Jewish community didn't feel like they, they should stop and help him. And then this man who is his sworn enemy takes care of him as a human being. And so at the end of the story, Jesus said to them, which of these is his neighbor, right? I mean, that's the question. Who's your neighbor? Um, who is the person who sees you as a human being? Who is the person who actually stops and helps you and supports you as opposed to um, ignoring your problem? you know, and making it not their problem. And like what you were saying, Phil, there's how do you get someone to care, right? And Jesus is saying it's the people who do care are the people that that are your neighbors. And those are your family and those are the people that are looking out for you. And so on the one hand, I look at it like, you know, when, when I think in my head about the Sunday school lessons I learned and that question, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would support the oppressed. Jesus would be right there to support the oppressed based on that parable. And the other thing that it reminds me of was a story where uh, Jesus and his disciples are hungry and they go out on the Sabbath and they pick corn from a cornfield. And you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. It's part of the law. You can't work on the Sabbath. And so even going out and picking the ears of corn on the stalks, um, they were accosted by uh, some of the Jewish leadership who was like, how dare you go out and break the law and work on the Sabbath and you go and you gathered this corn on the Sabbath day and this is, you know, this is wrong. And Jesus' response to it is that the law is written for man and not man for the law, right? So Jesus was saying that the, the law is supposed to serve people and be for the benefit of people. It's not supposed to be oppressive and it's not supposed to put, make, make hardships for people. It's not supposed to be oppressing you. It's supposed to be supporting you. And if the law isn't supporting me, 
I'm going out and I'm going to pick corn on the Sabbath. And so when this guy says, oh, well, there's this rule about kneeling and when and where to kneel, I'm going to say that when I look at the parables that I remember from Sunday school about Jesus and what would Jesus do, he basically said you can screw the rules if it's really not benefiting people. Number one, for if those rules are not helpful and they're harmful. And in this case, you had an opportunity to stand with oppressed people and to support them and show support. And you said no because of the rule. Did I not go out into the cornfields and show you that these rules are supposed to be there for the benefit? And if they don't benefit, then you can subvert them. And also the reason that you, what it means to be a human being to someone else is to be there and support them and help them when they need help. I just can't understand how you know, it, it, the Pharisees were constantly attacked by Jesus in the Bible because he would call them hypocrites. And he was like, you make a show of all the rules. You go out and you follow the rules and you do the rules and you look all right. You know, everything you do is by the book. But at the end of the day, you're missing the spirit of these laws. You're missing the heart of it and what it's supposed to be about, right? Now, don't get me wrong. There's plenty that I have to criticize about the, the Jewish laws, and I have done so in the past, and I have not changed my opinion, like slavery laws and things that are not okay with me. So I'm not defending the laws. But I am saying that the principle here that he was espousing was that when those laws are not serving people and when you have an opportunity to do the right thing by people and a rule is standing in the way of doing the right thing, then you do the right thing. And I still use Pharisee as a, an insult. <laughs> to this day, 2,000 years later. Um, yes, because, I mean, it was the, the very pious religious person who is at heart not really a caring, loving person who cares about people. They cared more about the rules than about human beings, and that was something that Jesus consistently criticized them for. Yep. Yeah, and, with, and when it came to like his uh, explanation as to why he couldn't, uh, it it rubbed me just looking at the situation and kind of changing, as I said, kind of before we got started, if this were a, a moment of solidarity to honor, for example, recently fallen service members that had fallen in the line of duty and they, you know, the MLB, this is obviously something crafted by the the major leagues. I mean, they, they sanctioned all this and got it all together. I'm sure they paid for the big old black tarp thing that they're holding the whole nine yards. I'm sure that all went into it. But if it was for that purpose to honor fallen service members, I don't see him as raising this religious objection well, to kneeling of, well, during that thing. portion. Without even second guessing him, right? You can only kneel to your God. How about you kneel in prayer at that time and pray for those black lives? How about you yeah. kneel and you pray to your God while you're down there kneeling? Kneel to your God and pray for racial equity and an end to the systemic racism and to these, you know, unjust murders. Can you yep. not? You could do that, right? If you can only kneel to your God, then freaking get down there and kneel to your God and say your prayer and meditate on these issues and, and make sure that you're communicating to your God, you know, mm -hmm. or whatever it is you think you yes. do. As, um, as many, his yeah. fellow were no doubt doing at that point, you know? Yeah. I mean, he yeah. could have kneeled to God. There's no, There was no rule that said that when he kneeled down, it had to be to something other than his God. He could have kneeled to his God and said a prayer on behalf of that cause. Right. Nothing was mm -hmm. stopping this man from kneeling. Yeah. 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 So there, there's an analyst from uh, NBC, Ian Williams, that uh, had this to say. He, he was like, let me make this clear that you don't have to be on board with 
Black Lives Matter, but I do need you to be on board with equality for all and ending racism, which is what that particular, this whole display was about, was that particular arm. And so like it's, as you said, Tracy, you, you could have went about this so many different ways. And I'm sure other people down that were kneeling, that were religious, were praying, just like you were saying, that they were, you know, doing whatever they thought would is effective. Maybe some people were just saying silent, you know, whomever, but they, everybody was taking it in their own way. And to say that, no, I can't, I can't do that. Like, I, I can't do it. I can only kneel before God. It's, it speaks to me as a disingenuous use and trying to cloak your dissatisfaction at whatever it is. Like he said, BLM, I don't know if it's just that. I don't know how he feels about certain issues, but I could only take what you're giving and what you're giving is bullshit. Like that, that's all I'm getting from this action and your justification. As they sometimes <laughs> say it doesn't pass the smell test. It really, it really didn't. <laughs> All right, it's like eight thirty-three <laughs> right. at night, and I, I'm like, that's that's thirty-three minutes past my bedtime. Jen's got to make jalapeno <laughs> popper dip stick things. <laughs> Bill hasn't eaten awesome, either. Man. Probably I... is going to be working till midnight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, and I've got to get up at four in the morning and go running. Oh. And, I, and I get to, I have to sleep in. <laughs> oh my god i'm so glad that you guys were up for a conversation it's been too long and it has been I'm so glad yeah. that i like made this podcast thing to put my indoctrination stuff out because now i've got this open podcast <laughs> thing and we could do this conversation so this was fun we can record more of these because jen says we could so next time we're going to talk about so i'll hold everyone to that even phil was on the call when it was said which means he's he's bound by it too now oh yeah i got you (laughs) all right well i want to just say thanks you guys and i really appreciate your thoughts and your your conversation this evening it's good to have you guys as friends yeah it was it was wonderful i i enjoyed it all right. Well, good night. All right. Good night. Thanks. Very good night. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.